Hi everyone, my name is Connor Heffernan and welcome to another edition of Sport and History. I'm very, very happy to be joined by Dr. Michael Connolly, who is a lecturer in sport management at Stirling University. And Michael has just published Walfred, A Life of Faith, Community and Football with Thirsty Books, which is now my new favourite name for a publisher. So we're going to be talking about Walfred, what the research is about, what um, Michael's experiences were looking at this really fascinating figure in Scottish and Irish uh, football and sport history, and then I suppose where people can find it as well. So Michael, I'll throw it over to you to maybe introduce yourself and give a better bio than I did, and tell us a little bit, give us a taster of Walford yeah. before we dig into it. Yeah, uh, so first of all, Connor, thanks thanks very much to yourself and British um, Sports Society of History for, for having me. Um, Walfred has, has been a, a project about 10 years in the making now, um, not just for myself, but for um, the, the individuals who, who funded the research project. So it's been something that's, you know, been been progressing over the years and, and kind of culminated in uh, the publication of, of the book in, in November of last year. So, um, yeah, it's been uh, the last five years of my life have, have really been dedicated to the, the project. Um, and it's it's hopefully a, an accessible read, not just for, for academics or, or historians of, of sport as such. Um, it's, a, it's a biography, so a traditional kind of narrative, birth to grave, um, gives some, some kind of new insights and um, unique perspectives on the life of um, the man most famously recognised or remembered as the founder of Celtic Football Club and here in Glasgow and in Scotland. So, yeah, there, there's some some kind of elements that probably growing up as a as a Celtic supporter as I as I have um, were were news to me. Um, some new kind of international connections that we were, were able to make um, over the course of the um, the first three years of my, my PhD project, which were um, really focused on new archival work in here in Scotland and Ireland in London and, and also latterly in, in France and Lyon at the Central Archives of the Maris Brothers. So uh, much like Wolfred's life, I was able to, to kind of follow in his footsteps and, and, and travel quite extensively and, and, and do the work. So it was it was an experience that I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and now, yep, you're absolutely correct. I'm now lecturing in, in sport management at the University um, of Stirling, having graduated last summer. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, because obviously so I'm you know, Dublin, born and raised, our family supports Celtic. So it's Andrew Cairns, you know, but Brother Alfred. It's a name that I know well, you know, because the, the the story of hel- helping to found Celtic. How, how, I suppose, did you come to that? And then what's also been published on him academically? Because I feel like it's a name that Celtic fans would know, but it's just sort of like a two-line, you yeah. know, Brother Alfred, friend of the club, blah, blah move on like i'm just wondering what what's been published on them in that like deep research sense yeah so it's he's been a figure that i've I've had a particular interest in um thinking back to my, my undergraduate years I did, I did economic and social history as my undergraduate degree um at glasgow university <clears throat> excuse me and in my, my final year dissertation project it, it, it coincided with the 125th anniversary of, of, of Celtic football club mm-hmm. so um, there was a lot in the, the media around the, the kind of origins of the club and how far it had, had come from you know humble origins in the east end of Glasgow 
um, that narrative of, of poverty and, and um, concern for the welfare of, of its community from which it, it sprang. So um, as part of that kind of literature review, I became aware of um, the, the historian or, or mm. sociologist Joe Bradley, who, who would become a, a primary supervisor for the, the PhD project. Um, so Dr. Bradley's work on, on, on Celtic and its early kind of constitution and um, that, that community, the, the Irish immigrant community to Glasgow from which it, it came out of, um, became really important to not just my, my undergraduate dissertation, but uh, latterly the, the PhD project. And um, again, kind of researchers like Ray Vamplu, who looked at kind of charity and, and the function of charity within um, sport um, would have become pretty pretty key to to understanding the origins of, of Celtic as a football club. Mm -hmm. um, so that that was my initial kind of interest in, in um, the the origins of, of the club. But in terms of Walford as an individual, um, there was a, a painting commissioned by uh, the Nine Muses, a, a Glasgow-based kind of arts company. Um, who, who looked to produce the, the kind of defining image of, of Walford off the back of the club's anniversary celebrations. And um, it hangs to this day in, in St Mary's, the, the Roman Catholic Church, where Celtic were, were founded for all intents and purposes by Brother Walford back in, in November the 6th, 1887. Um, not in the church, but in the, in the attached parish hall. Um, so it was a, a site that's really key to the origins and the ethos um, of Celtic Football Club. So I was aware of that image, um, but the, the the arts company um, looked to to go a, a, kind of a few steps further by commissioning a PhD research project, and, and I was made available of the or made aware of the availability of funding to to return to to higher education to to take on that project, and it was something I was really thrilled and, and, and happy to, to do back in 2017 when it started in earnest. So mm. um, yeah, that was the kind of background to the research. And in terms of this is actually researching Brother Walford, like obviously the later you get into the 19th century, because he's born in 1890, dies in 1915. I, I know the historical record probably plumps up, but I'm wondering like his early years, because you know, he's born in 1890 and he, you mentioned it in the say the blurb to the book, like this is the time of Ungerta Moore, like the Great Famine in Ireland. Yes, there's a there's yeah. a real issue with like just surviving memory and surviving archives from this period. How difficult was it to get that early history for him? Because I know you you dig into say his religious faith, you know, you you dig into mm. his community um ideas, his love of sport. Did he write anything in later years to reflect back on his childhood, or is this a period that it's sort of in the black box of the famine, for want of a better phrase. Yeah, well, this, I, I was fully aware of um, just almost if you look at a skeleton kind of timeline of, of Walford's life. So born in 1840, obviously we have the onset of the, the worst effects of the famine mm -hmm. when he would have been aged just just five, six, seven. Um, so, you know, right at the, the beginnings of, of his life and his formative years. So. I knew, I knew from the start that that was a potential area where we could make a real contribution to understanding his, his, his later motives in life and why he made some of the decisions that, that he did, including you know, the, the, the formation of, of Celtic with, with a, 
expressed charitable purpose um, and, and also linked to the feeding of, of the poor children of, of the East End of Glasgow. So um, that, that was an obvious kind of connection that I thought, okay, we can we can really kind of put some meat on on the bones of that that skeleton that that was there already. Um, but as you said, it wasn't it wasn't by any stretch of the imagination an easy task with the the dearth of um, record that remains from the Angottamore period. But one way that I, I was very fortunate, I suppose, was um, that. Wolfred has um, surviving relatives who still live in the, the locality where he was born um, in County Sligo on the west coast of Ireland. He was born in Ballymoat, a rural um, farming town just outside um, Sligo itself. So um, the, the family were, were hugely generous in giving of their time and um, they were able to, to record interviews and, and discuss what, what kind of memories had been, been passed down from their, you know, their, their, their pretty kind of famous um, relative. And that kind of plugged a few gaps in terms of the, the historical record. Um, obviously, 1922-23 in Ireland, there's the, the Civil War is going on. So there's the, the Four Courts fire, which um, put paid to a huge kind of range of, of census data, frustratingly. <laughs> so that, that, was a, that was a real um, barrier that we had to overcome. But there was other records as well that I, I was able to use, like the the, the Ties appointments, um, the, the Griffiths reports and, and things like that. So um, I worked with archivists in, in Sligo itself and in, in Dublin as well. So we were able to 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 really get to grips with um, Wilfred's early, early years. But of course, he leaves at such a young age. He left um, Sligo age just 15. Um, leaving his family and, and the, the farmstead behind. And, and we had that kind of narrative that had been passed down through the generations, confirmed by the members of the family themselves. So um, that was a, a huge kind of box ticked and, and gave, gave us some clarity to, to his early, the early chapter of his life and um, some of the circumstances surrounding his, his departure or migration to Scotland. And without revealing too much, because I want people to buy the book, because for yeah. once it's actually very, very reasonable at twenty pounds, which you know r- rarely gets to be said about an academic book. What is his or his family's? Were you able to get a sense of his or his family's experience of the famine? Because obviously it, it was an uneven tragedy. You know, yeah. some families were relatively unscathed, and some families mm-hmm. it was a, a personal, professional, spiritual disaster. Mm. So we, we know that the family were, uh, were were reliant on working the land and from from some surviving prison records, there's the very distinct possibility that um, the the Walfords or Andrew Cairns' father, um, John, uh, was sent to, to Sligo prison for, mm. for missed payments of, of rents. And obviously that would be distinctly uh, linked to the the impacts of Anglotomore and the failure of the, the potato crop. So we know that there was a very high likelihood that the Kerens family suffered as, as a very high proportion of, of Irish people did at, at that period. So, um, yeah, there was certainly um, evidence that that the, the famine, as it's, as it's most commonly referred to, um, had that 
that kind of transformational effect on the, the fortunes of the, the Karen's family. And the, the story or the narrative that they were, were able to relay to, to myself through the interviews was that um, with the, the Irish kind of tradition of primogeniture, so the, the oldest son, um, Wilfred's, Andrew Karen's older sibling, Peter, was, was in line to inherit the land. Um, so a, a second born son, like many um, in, in Ireland, the, the prospects or, or potential for um, the land to support them and into adulthood simply wasn't there at that time, given the, the after effects of, of famine. So um, like a lot of that generation um, who went into the priesthood, Wilfred eventually um, dedicated his life to, to religion in a, in a different way as a Marist brother. Um, so a Catholic uh, religious educator. And I suppose on that, the Mars are not particularly a, a religious order that I'm familiar with. Are they one yeah. of the more socially conscious religious orders, um, which would have been in Ireland and the UK, the ones that would have said gone out in the community and sort of, you know, through deeds, not words, um, to appropriate a different saying, or were they one of the more cloistered spiritual communities where we're going to go up into the, the monastery and stay there, you know, and reflect on God? Yeah, it was really interesting and an eye-opener as I walked through the, the research to see the kind of close parallels between the the origins of the, the origin story of the Maris brothers and, and Wolfred's own life. The the Maris brothers were founded by Father um, of now Saint Marceline Champagne in a, a rural town outside Lyon um, in France. So I, immediately you're seeing parallels between uh, Wolfred's own life. Um, and and the, the reason or the raison d'etre for the Maris brothers was to to go out and educate um, impoverished young people. So Wolfred's own day job, so to speak, was as a as a teacher. Um, so a, a teacher of young boys in, in Glasgow initially, um, and later later in London. Um, but he, through his, his organising abilities and his um, his capacity for learning, especially languages, um, he's able to rise to, to quite a prominent position within the, the order itself. Um, so comparatively speaking, he it, it, he's, he's lives quite an itinerant life and by virtue of that, he's very, um, he's got a very kind of interesting biography. And looking at, as well as to, to bring the sport uh, element into this, yes. He obviously he found Celtic in 1888, you know, which is easy enough for me to remember because on the crest. What's his sport history before that? Like, does he attempt to create football clubs or sporting clubs prior to 1888? Or is this a sort of new venture to try and create a, a new means of helping the poor? Yeah, is, is that kind of um, Mannion notion or, or, of, or, of sport or in this case, football as a, as a tool of education. So mm -hmm. uh, the, the first kind of evidence or connection that I was able to make between Brother Wolford and, and football specifically was, was in the, the school logbooks that are held in the, the Mitchell Library archive in, in Glasgow uh, from the, the schools that he was connected with, uh, teaching first as a pupil teacher, then um, latterly a headmaster. So the Maris brothers were are pretty quick to note the potential um, for football in terms of its 
uh, especially in Glasgow, it's it's huge um, popularity um, right from the start, from the foundation of, of kind of clubs like Queen's Park in 1867, Rangers 1872, and the first um, international match between Scotland and England, which is hosted in, in Partick in 1873. So it's around that time, like the late 1860s, early 1870s, um, I've seen the first mentions of, of the football being introduced to the playground to, at this point, try and encourage uh, young Catholic boys to to come and attend um, schooling. Uh, schooling was, was optional at that point, so because of the prevalence of poverty, um, a lot of young kids weren't able to avail of education in that era. So football was almost used as, as the kind of hook to, to bring kids along um, for educational purposes at, at that time. So we know that Walford was also um, closer to the, the foundation of the club um, in the, the 1880s, before the arrival of Celtic Football Club on the Scottish Scottish football scene. Um, he's inviting Hibernian FC from, from Edinburgh uh, through to, to play in benefit matches or charity matches to, to raise funds for the, the poor children's dinner tables, which is a charity that he established from from his Sacred Heart School in Glasgow, and for which the the football club Celtic was was founded with the express purpose of, of raising funds for um, the maintenance of. So, um, I think Wilfred's kind of view of, of sport or of football in particular was was of, of using it as a vehicle for for fundraising um, and for. Um, kind of moral and social improvement. So that I think that's that's where he notes the potential of, of sport. And I was going to ask, um, like, how influential Hibs or Hibernian were in the story. So th- there's two anecdotes that, that I vaguely remember. One is that Hibs were a very important, say, foundation or inspirational model for what um, Welford had when he was thinking yeah. of Celtic, because Hibernian would have also had that charitable component obviously with the yeah. Irish emigrant yeah. community is was in one sense Hibernian the blueprint for Walford when Celtic is established yeah I, I, well I think there's there's no denying that Hibernian and their achievements I think they were founded in 1875 so you know over a decade prior to Celtic so they were well established in in football terms in Scotland by by the time Wolfred settles upon the idea of of founding his own equivalent in Glasgow. But um, I think it's a response to a challenge that you can kind of make that connection between uh, Hibs and Celtic. So Hibs won the, the Scottish Cup of 1887 mm-hmm. and it was it was played in Glasgow and, and on the return to through to Edinburgh the, the players were invited to the same hall uh, St Mary's Parish Hall, where where Celtic would eventually be be founded, just a few short months later. So, I think it's no coincidence that um, we have record historical record of the speeches that were given at that dinner, for example. Um, and it's one of the the Hibs officials um, throws down the gauntlet and says, "Why don't you go and do likewise in Glasgow?" Um, and I think Walford, and not only Walford, but the the committee men who were also involved in in Getting Celtic on its on its feet and, and up and running, um, they certainly would have been their interest would have been would have been piqued by um, those kind of statements. So, 
I think, yeah, uh, Hibs were, were certainly a, an inspiration and, and a, a kind of blueprint for, for what was achieved by Wilfred in Glasgow. And I'm really happy you've said this because the second anecdote, and correct me if I'm wrong, because <laughs> I, I, I very well could be, but I vaguely remember effectively reading that other committee members were a little bit more sport-hungry than Walford. So they put money up to sign several of Hibs' best players in like 87 or 88, unbeknownst to Walford. Is that true or is this yeah, something? Yeah, well, I, it wouldn't have been something that I would have been able to to prove through the, the historical record, um, whether or not Walford was party to to um, some of the, the back payments that were made at the time. But I think it's important to remember that it's the the era of, of, of shamaterism or yeah. Um, you know, it's it, it was something that Hibs, for example, um, would have been prosecuted for want of a better word by the, the SFA for around that time as well. So it, it, you get the sense that you know most clubs were at it. Um, some of the some of the more unfriendly messages I would have received on social media over the, the years of the PhD would have actually came from Hibs fans, believe it or not, rather than. Uh, the other side of Glasgow, um, because of that initial kind of fallout around, mm-hmm. you know, a, a large number of, of Hibs players um, defecting and coming through and, and representing Celtic. Um, but it's important to note that that football was was amateur in nature at that time. You could play for anyone um, at any time, and, and certainly players played for for more than one team on on any given Saturday afternoon, for example. So. It's a totally different era, and I think, um, yeah, it's probably something that Walfred himself would have had very little input towards. I think Walfred's how he's remembered by his contemporaries, who were maybe more involved in the the sporting side of, of things, such as the Maley brothers. So Willie and, and Tom Tom Maley, they they played in the very first Celtic team, and and Willie Maley, of course, was the first um, manager of the club when it professionalised in eighteen ninety seven. I think figures like that would have been a lot more involved in um, matters sporting, and, and Walford is remembered as this um, kind of educator, almost older, wiser head, um, who was the, the teacher of, of many of the, the men involved in the creation of Celtic. So, um, yeah, he, he's more of a kind of hands-off, um, philosophical kind of figure, and that's how he's remembered in the, in the writings of the time. Yeah, because I was going to ask because Celtic obviously start to experience success relatively quickly mm. within their tenure. So I was just wondering how did that balancing act um, survive? I suppose what you're saying is like Walford was sort of off the pitch, social programs, left yeah. the sporting side to the committee members, to donors, to funders, etc. And, and that was how the relationship as well as um, teetered along. But- there is evidence of, of Wolford attending AGMs, the annual annual meetings and, and business meetings in the, the Catholic press in Glasgow at the time. Um, and I think there's that really interesting tension when you when we take Celtic as, as the, the example in this case, of course, between charity and, and business. So on the one one had to feed both had to feed the other. It was a kind of reciprocal relationship. So in order to raise as much kind of funds as possible for these uh, these charities that Wilfred was um, was running in, in Glasgow at the time, he required a, a team to be successful on the field to to get 
to get monies through the gate that, that could then be um, dispersed towards charitable causes. So um, there's this kind of unique tension between the need to be as successful as possible in a sporting sense, and of course that requires capital and an investment. But on the other hand, um, Celtic has this unique, um, almost raison d'etre of, of being founded as as a charity first and foremost, and that's probably a tension that um, that runs right through uh, the history of Celtic to this to this day. Um, that that notion that it's um, a club apart, a, a club with a unique DNA, um, and that can that can be linked and traced to to Brother Walford himself. And with those um, charitable efforts, like was it predominantly like, the Irish diaspora, or was it the poor in Glasgow? In general, like I'm just wondering, because very early on, um, Celtic is married to a very distinct kind of Irish nationalist identity, or at least mm-hmm. an Irish identity. So I'm just wondering, like, was that sort of a, a quirk of history, or like very early on, was it, you know, Irish Catholics were the the main patrons, I suppose, of the charitable side um, of Celtic? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I haven't phrased that correctly, but I hope you can give a good answer. That no, I. I... I know exactly exactly what you what you mean in terms of you know the first patron of the club is the the archbishop archbishop Ayr. so mm-hmm. very high profile figure in in civic terms at the time um a, a very popular choice I would have imagined but amongst the the, the kind of Celtic community or it's the the people who they they were trying to appeal to um and then the other honorary patron a couple of years later would have been Michael Davitt. Um, the famous um, Irish uh, Republican uh, fundraiser and, and political figure. So um, that combination of religion and, and national Irish nationalism is, is something that the club, from its outset, were um, were very happy to be to be associated with and also to to raise monies towards. So um, there's there's a very kind of unique. As you can imagine, set of circumstances that surround the origins of Celtic, and it's something that I think Brother Wolfred would have been acutely aware of. His role as a as a man of religion was to to live out his vow of poverty, um, and as I as I mentioned, his charity that he founded at that time was called the Poor Children's Dinner Table. So it can be understood as a kind of precursor to to free school meals. It was it was a means of again encouraging attendance at school um, specifically amongst the the most impoverished and 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 the social group at that time um, and the, the the historical record bears out that the certainly during Walford's connection with the club uh, bearing in mind that he he left for for London in 1892 so for those first kind of four or five years of the club's existence they really stuck quite Quite religiously, um, for want of a better word, uh, to to that original circular, that that original purpose. So, um, I think his influence at that time um, was was really strong, especially especially on the committee men um, involved in the the creation and organisation of the club. And before I suppose going into the the later years, um, what I mean by that is you know post Celtic, yeah. Did, Walford ever express or record any sort of political sentiment just out of interest? Because obviously, like yeah. on Gertie Moore, you 
know, it radicalizes generations of Irishmen. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes those who left the country seem to be more radicalized than those who remain yeah. within the country. So I'm just wondering, like, was there ever a, a, a speech or an article or anything that he may have um, yeah. expressed any sort of sentiment towards an Irish nationalism or, you know, the very famous um, Irish revolutionary, John Mitchell, who would have, say, blamed the English yeah, for yeah. The, the Great Famine. I'm just wondering, like, did you ever get a sense of Walford's political leanings either way or is he a man of the cloth and that was the most important thing? Yeah, I think... Um... In terms of his own his own writings, Walford was very um, clear, and or the the theme that's very clear from handwritten letters that are uncovered and and uh, notes that survive from the period, they make repeated reference to to poor children. So mm-hmm. those two words um, together, it's the title of the charity that he um, goes about setting up, and um, so that that's his real priority in terms of his his mission or his ministry as a as a Maris brother. But I think the the connection, as I mentioned, between Celtic and its choice of Michael Davitt, for example, um, a, an Irish nationalist who um, I, I think spent time in prison for for taking up arms against England or, or Britain, but who in, in later years kind of mellowed and, and preferred political organi- organization maybe reflects something towards the, the nature of the men who, who created Celtic. That was um, maybe something they, they obviously had um, support for, for home rule. That was the political kind of issue of the day. Um, but in terms of Walford himself, there's no kind of uh, recording of, of his depth of feeling regarding mm-hmm. Irish political matters. But he did attend um, political meetings in terms of organising the, the Catholic vote in Glasgow, for example, um, around education matters. So I think his his priority in life really was the the, the children under his care. And something that probably speaks to that is the fact that he is so sent or goes to London um, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the early 1890s. That was something for for some reason had had been a black spot for me when sort of knowing my early Celtic history. That sort of flummoxed me because, and I think that speaks to what you're saying about him seeing the club as a means of, um, I suppose, char- charity works. Because in, in my head, this is the man who helps found Celtic, and for whatever reason, I believe that you know he was wedded to the club yeah. forevermore. But obviously, like he has a a, a a very rich life until 1915, completely yeah. away from Celtic. So, how how does that like? Is there an attempt to keep him in Glasgow? Like, is he just, you know, I've done my yeah. duty now, on to the next one? Like, it, it seems such a funny quirk that you don't usually see in these sort of origin stories of clubs. Yeah, I think in, in the historiography of what's been written previously around the formation of, of Celtic as a club, there's a bit of a, a gap or a blind spot around just understanding exactly what the life of a Maris brother entails. So, one of the, the sacred vows that they take alongside that vow of poverty is the vow of obedience. And um, so I've seen it written or recorded that Walfred, um, you know, was, was separated from his connection with this, this football club that was gathering, you know, crowds of tens of thousands within a couple of seasons of its of its getting off the off the ground and, and going, um, and trying to almost separate him from from something that was becoming a bit bigger than 
than than his role as a as a religious. But the I suppose kind of boring um, reality of the situation was that the the schools that the Maris brothers were responsible for in in East London um, at that time were were, were solely um, lacking in leadership and staffing. So. Uh, Wilfred, with his track record, um, of course, of, of organising abilities, not just in education terms, but in terms of um, social programmes, such as the poor children's dinner tables, and of course, the, the Celtic connection stood out as, a, as an ideal kind of senior figure who, who was required elsewhere in, um, in the province for the, the brothers. So that, that was the real reason for his uh, departure in 1892. But I do get the sense that it would have been a real wrench for him to to leave Glasgow. There's um, a lot of reports in the in the especially the Catholic press at the time uh, around kind of you know the recording of thanks for for what what kind of impact he had on the East End at large. Um, Celtic, for example, gifted him a, a gold watch um, and a, a pretty sizable sum of money uh, that. Of course, as a Maris brother, and that vow of poverty would have used for um, for charitable purposes. But uh, you, you get a sense that he, he would have been really wedded to to Glasgow. And um, one nice detail that I found from from his uh, retirement years was that he, to his to his dying day, received a, a telegram, a weekly telegram of the Celtic results. So I think he was a genuine supporter, um, and he really caught the bug. So. Uh, it was nice to know that he, he maintained a, a connection with the club to his, to his dying day. And I think thinking of, so, without being too macabre, his legacy, um, mm. how has his legacy evolved over the decades within Celtic? Or is that something that you looked at? Because I, I get the sense that obviously people knew the story, but it seems to have grown in importance and gotten legs over yes, over the yeah. decades. Like it's, the, the story has become more symbolic um, as time has gone on. Yeah, I think especially in, in recent years, um, I think the, the statue to, to Wolford that's outside the stadium, that was the first statue that was put up by, by the club in 2005 or 2006. So relative, you know, last 20 years, relatively recently, there was a kind of rediscovery of, of the club's roots and, and origins. I think for years, as you said, or, as you've hinted at, it, it, it was almost taken as read, like, well, we have this kind of origin story, um, but to what extent the, the club was aware of, of his wider life or his wider significance, I'm not too sure. But certainly since 2005 or six, when the statue um, was erected, there became a, a bit of a, not a campaign, but um, certainly interest was generated on, on Walford as a, as a man, I think um, I write in the book that, that my task as a as I saw it was to kind of separate the the man from the myth. So this kind of myth that mm-hmm. we've inherited from um, over a, a century ago in the foundation of the club to try and to almost humanise him again and, and connect him to his his lived experience as such. So um, that that was my mission as I as I saw it with the, the PhD in the book. And thinking of those myths especially like I, I did laugh when you said earlier you know you got a little bit of stick online um when you're doing this PhD I was like you know what what could be controversial about the founding figure of Celtic um most most certainly an undivisive club or character 
Um, but but <laughs> yeah. because like every club has its own myths, like you know, I'm a Leeds United fan, so we'd have certain mythologies about Leeds City, and then even the recent history of Leeds has been mythologized to a certain extent. Mm. Uh, is there one myth about you know Brother Walford that's particularly egregious, or you know has been used for purposes beyond um, the actual story? So I'm just thinking, especially with in in some retellings of Celtic's uh, yeah. history in more recent years, like it's a very Irish club because you know we had this founding figure, but then one could look at you know instances where the club is most certainly now a Scottish club as well as an Irish club. So I'm just wondering. Yeah. Have there been any particularly interesting or egregious instances of his mythology or his story being used either for or against Celtic, you know, to advance a particular yeah. message? Um, I, yeah, I'm not too sure about uh, egregious, but maybe uh, like inaccurate kind of yeah, recollections. Yeah, egregious of, is way too strong. <laughs> that came in way uh, too hard there. Yeah, inaccurate. There we go. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely a lot of examples. Yeah, probably examples um, of of how um, Walford is remembered and how certain details of his life are, are recalled. So I, I saw that as part of the, the task to try and try and you know put the historical record straight on on a few details. One kind of that slightly bugs me is is and I was discussing this with um, another historian of the early years of Celtic, Brendan Sweeney. Just last week would be the. It is quite a famous among Celtic supporters, especially the the original um, kind of founding uh, principles that were recorded and, and dispersed um, around Glasgow at the, the time of the club's founding. And um, records that the, the club was founded to to maintain these poor children's dinner tables, um, but it's often kind of misquoted that that original circular and there's an, an addendage or an addition um, referring to the unemployed, which is slightly inaccurate, but it's a, a confusion between Balford did um, host a charity match that, that Renton and, and Dundee Hart played in. It was for the benefit of the children of the unemployed. So um, it's a slight kind of misunderstanding of, of Walford's um, main kind of golden thread that runs through his life which is concern for the poor and especially poor children um, and I think that that certainly stems from probably his own personal experience um, being a, a child of the famine um, for want of a better description there but uh, yeah I think he, he suffered certainly in, in his formative years and I think that experience stuck with him and into adulthood and, and that's probably why he embarked on the path that he did as a as an educator and as a teacher. As a final question, um, because you've been very generous with your time because I also sort of ranted with and at you uh, for 20 minutes before we recorded. What question or what story should I have asked you um during this interview? Like what's the the good question about your research about this book that's just been published? That I clearly did not ask. Feel free to be blunt as well. <laughs> not, like not I, at all. I, I'm at that point, no. like you know, where people can be blunt. Well, I, I could discuss the book and, and Walford until um, the cows come home. So I'm quite happy to answer any questions uh, around around his life and the research. So no, it's it's been it's been great, Connor. Um, but I suppose the the obvious one, and it's the final chapter of my book, is on is on legacy. So, but probably in I'm speaking 
quite openly and honestly. But for a large number of Celtic supporters, Walford is a is a statue outside the stadium. You know, he's, he's this historical figure. Um, it's nice that we know some more details about him. But for me, the importance of of the research in the book is about continuing that legacy and the the unique kind of reason for why there is a club that plays in, in green and white with the Irish tricolour above the stadium um, in this part of the world in the east end of Glasgow. And um, I think hopefully the 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 figure of Walfred and, and what, what he stood for and what he lived out during his uh, his time on, on the planet um, is something that, that can go a long way to explaining, for example, why the, the club's charitable foundation, the Celtic FC Foundation, is, is a real kind of leader in the, the corporate social responsibility sector of, of, of British sport and, and why it's treated with such importance as it as it is by the by the club. So um I think if we were to ask Walfred, for example, what what he would he would like to to see continued on in, in his name, then that would be one example of, of football for good, which is the, the tagline that's used by the, the foundation today. So um I think there's modern parallels that I've hinted at in the research with uh, what Marcus Rashford was able to achieve mm-hmm. during the the COVID lockdowns, when you know he, he made that connection between the potential for sport and um, and uh, its potential for good in, in wider society, and um, I think you know to this day there's still there's still space and, and time for that to happen in, in sport. So yeah, I would say that that's Wolford's legacy for me. Very good. And if other people want to learn about Walford's legacy, obviously Walford, a life of faith, community and football has just been published by Thirsty Books. So Michael, thank you so much for this. For people who have listened, I'll put a link to the book um, underneath the show notes. And if there's anything else you want to include, um, I'll include that as well. So just end by saying, A, congratulations on, on a recent publication. Thank you, Connor. Here's to the next one. I'll just leave that dangling over your head. Um, and th- this has been really fascinating. So thank you so much. No, thank you for your time, Connor. And if anyone would like to to make contact with me, I'm I'm quite active on Twitter. Um, at Walfred PhD is what I use on online. So be happy to answer questions on on the book, um, etc. There. So thanks again, Connor. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks so much. Bye.